Our message this morning is entitled, Is God Punishing Me? Grab your Bible, would you please? Let's go to Hebrews chapter 12, and we're going to pick up in verse 7. I said in the first hour, I wish we had time to actually go through the entire chapter here, but we'd be here all morning and most of the afternoon. <clears throat> but we're going to zero right in and focus. We're going to laser our focus in on verses 7 through 11. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7. Follow along as I read. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if we are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of our spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good so that we might share in his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Over the past 30 years as a pastor and as a counselor, I've sat across the table from hundreds of people with a variety of problems. And numerous times, counselees have stopped in the midst of a counseling session and looked at me, sometimes with tears rolling down their cheeks, and asked the question, is God punishing me? It's a great question. And maybe it's a question that you've asked yourself at one time or another, depending upon the hardship and the difficulty and affliction that you've gone through. Is God punishing me? And it deserves a worthy answer. One of the more infamous times I heard that was back about five years ago. My wife and I have an opportunity, uh, usually once a year, in fact, again in this year in August, we're going back to Germany. We usually fly over to Switzerland and spend a week there in Zurich teaching pastors from all over Switzerland in uh, counseling and how you use the Bible, very practical and serious problems in people's lives. And then we go from there, from Zurich, Switzerland, up to Germany and different spots in Germany. Um, in this particular year, we were actually in Cologne, Germany. Some of you have been to Cologne, you know that the large international United Nations building is there, and the church that we were at was actually in the shadow of that large international United Nations building. <clears throat> and we were conducting an entire week of service, uh, or training sessions that week, and we had about between two and three hundred pastors and their wives and church leaders from all over Germany that had come to Cologne in order to get this training, and the training began at eight o'clock in the or nine o'clock in the morning, and went until nine o'clock or eight o'clock at night. Got to get that straight. Nine in the morning until eight o'clock at night. <clears throat> and that particular day that I was teaching, I had taught several times that day. And in fact, we have a good friend of mine who graduated from the Master Seminary. He actually pastors uh, in Bern, Switzerland now. His name is Martin Manton. Martin. Grew up in Switzerland, spoke German very fluently, speaks also some French and Italian. But uh, he actually went to high school here in the United States up in Indiana. And he's a big guy, big bald head guy, and uh, played high school football. It's rare to find a somebody from Switzerland that's played American football. But Martin had, and he spoke English fluently and understood English. So he's always my translator, and I love to work with Martin because I can just talk straight out and right along, and Martin translates fluently for me as I talk, and I don't have to pause or just give him little sentences. Sometimes with translators, I have to do that, and, and then they have to translate it, and then I give them the next little section, and they have to translate it. Martin just translates right as I'm jabbering along. So he and I worked together very, very well. One day, it was at the end of the day, we were there in Cologne, Germany, there were two or three hundred pastors out in the audience. It was around, uh, I had the last address that day. It was between seven and eight o'clock in the evening. And I had just concluded uh, my lecture at that particular time. 
And we closed in prayer. We dismissed the people. And as I was wrapping things up, I could hear my bed calling to me, John, come to me. I was dead tired. If you teach all day, you're just exhausted. I was dead tired. And as I was wrapping up, I could see in my peripheral vision, there's an aisle of the church came up this way, and I could see this little old lady with a scarf tied around her head like this and a long gray coat on. And the first thing I noticed about her was her swollen ankles, which kind of suggested congestive heart failure. And she just made a beeline for me and Martin, and she grabbed, this little lady grabbed big Martin by the arm and stuck a bony finger at me and said to him in German, I need to talk with that man. I go, oh boy, I wonder what I said. (laughs) And I was preparing a response that says, listen, I'm not responsible for anything I say after 8 o'clock in the evening. Uh, Come back tomorrow, and we'll sit down, and we'll talk, because I'm really tired, and I want to go home. But before I could get that out, she already says to Martin, "Uh, listen, I want you to tell him that I want to share something with him I have never shared with anybody ever in my life. When a 75-year-old lady says that, she's got my attention. So I said, okay, well, let's go right over here to the side. We went off to the side of the church, sat down in three little chairs over here. I had prayer with her, and then I said, tell me what's on your mind. And she launched in to an hour-long story. And I sat there and listened. And Martin translated for me. And he had a hard time because at points she would lapse into Russian and Martin doesn't know Russian so he'd have to ask her in German now explain what do you mean by that because she has a Russian background and I'll let me give you just a little nutshell of that particular story because in all my 30 years this particular story has got a rank right up there as one of the worst I've ever heard and I've heard some really bad things This was a woman who grew up in the Soviet Union. Um, She was actually born uh, into a pastor's home. Her father was a pastor. Uh, He pastored an underground church there that sort of met out in the woods. It was a pretty large church, uh, 300 people more, that was a part of that particular church. Her lineage was actually German. If you know anything about history, you know Back in the 1700s, after Peter III of Russia died, then his widow, Catherine the Great, took over leadership of Russia. And Russia was in horrible economic conditions at that particular time. And so in order to alleviate that, in fact, Catherine the Great actually uh, served on the throne of Russia there for almost 34 years. But in order to alleviate the economic depression that Russia was going through, Catherine the Great made a journey to Germany. And in those days, back in the mid-1700s, Germany had the best farmers in the world. And so she, she went to Germany in order to enlist farmers to come to Russia to teach the Russians how to farm the way the Germans farm. And then as a gift to them, she would grant them large parcels of land. And that's one thing that Russia was rich in was land and lots of land. And so thousands of German farmers uprooted themselves and their families and they went to Russia. And even to this day, you can find conclaves of Germans all over the Russian farming communities. And all of that was a result of (coughs) Catherine the Great. Well, then, of course, later on, when Stalin and Soviets took over, then all those farmers lost the land that they had received and that was a part of their families by that time. And it became a part of the government lands, communal farms. And she was born underneath that communist regime. She grew up in that church, that 
Baptist Russian German church that met out in the woods. And when she became a teenager, she ran into a young man in that church, fell head over heels in love for him. And she sat there and described to me how much she really loved that young man and she believed that he loved her. And as a result of that, the two of them make a very sinful and tragic mistake. They ended up sleeping together and during that one time she got pregnant. It brought great shame upon her family. Her father as the pastor got, brought shame upon the church and even in society at large that was basically an atheistic society that was shameful then too. And of course, as Christians, the option at that time was not to abort the baby. The option was to carry that baby to full term. They can't kill the baby. So what are we going to do? Her mother and father spent weeks just hashing back and forth what they would do about this because as the pregnancy, as she got larger and larger, it became more evident that she was going to be pregnant and that this was going to bring great shame upon her church and her family. Her uncle came along and proposed an idea. Her uncle said, I've been able to find a job for her in another town, and she could go there and live, work in this job, support herself, give birth to the child, and uh, give it away for adoption, and then come back, and that way the family and the church and everybody will save face. She didn't like that idea at all. And in fact, when the young man that she had fallen in love with found out that she was pregnant, he didn't want to have anything to do with her, which really crushed her. Because her idea was that they were going to get married and, in a sense, cover over the shame of all of this by getting married, but he refused to have anything to do with her. So anger grew in her heart. And she described her anger towards the young man, towards her father, towards her mother, towards her uncle, talking about sending her in a way. And she described for me in great detail the day that they took her to the train station and put her on the train, how much anger she had towards her father and her mother and her uncle and the young man that deserted her. And that was the last time she ever saw her parents. Put her on the train went north. What her uncle had failed to tell her was back during that time in the Soviet regime, the economy was very, very poor in Russia too, so it was very unusual to find a job. And her uncle was just pleased that she had found something. But when she finally arrived after a long journey on this train, here it was on the edge of Siberia. It turned out to be a prisoner work camp. There were over 600 men in that particular camp. And she was the only cook for that whole camp. And she began to describe to me how every day, sometimes multiple times a day, she was raped. And the anger in her heart that grew was enormous. Just anger. Nine months later, she was actually walking from the prison camp into town to get supplies for the kitchen. In the middle of winter, her water broke. The baby decided to come. She described how she sat down in the snow, delivered her own child, and in her anger took that child and threw the child out across the ice. And I looked up at her and the tears are just flowing down her face. I look at my big translator. He's got tears in his eyes describing this. Through a set of circumstances, she was eventually able to get away from that particular prison camp and make it to East Germany when the wall was still up. She got a job there, and as a few years went by, she met a young man. They fell in love. They got married. 
Not long after she was married, she got pregnant again, and as soon as her husband found out that she was pregnant, he left her, and she never saw him again. She was left to raise her daughter for the next 20 years. She gave birth to the baby, raised her daughter for the next 20 years. Her daughter then grew up, met a young man, got married, not long afterwards got pregnant, had a little baby girl, her granddaughter. Two months after the little baby girl was born, her daughter and son-in-law were in a terrible car accident. Both of them were killed. The baby was maimed. And now she's left with her granddaughter to raise her. And tears just flowed. During that time, the wall eventually comes down between East and West Germany, and all the East Germans believed the West Germans were extremely wealthy, and so as a result of that, they moved from East Germany into West Germany and moved into the city of Cologne. Through that set of circumstances, her daughter ran into some friends that she had, and these friends invited her to the church that I was speaking in. And as a result of that, her daughter came to Christ. Her granddaughter came to Christ. So her granddaughter started coming home to Grandma and saying, Hey, Grandma, why don't you come to church with me? Nope, not interested. Gave up on that God stuff a long time ago. <clears throat> not interested. Don't want to have anything to do with church. Don't want to have anything to do with God. Don't want to have anything to do with Jesus Christ. Meaningless to me. Granddaughter kept coming back saying, Grandma, ought to come to church with me. Nope. Come on, Grandma. Come to church with me. She described how irritated she was with her granddaughter. So in order to get her granddaughter off her back, she said, okay, I'll go. I'll go to church. But only once. That's it. Just once. Don't ask me anymore. And in that one time, going to church, God melted her heart, broke her heart, and she gave her life to Jesus Christ. That was just two months before we showed up. And here I've been teaching this whole week on how the Bible speaks to the very practical issues of life and addresses where we live on a daily level. And this is ringing true in her heart. And at the conclusion of this whole story, she looks at me and she says, Dr. Street, is God punishing me? It's a great question. Something you may have wondered. God punishing me? I saw right there on her lap was her little Bible. I said, I want you to grab your Bible. In fact, I want you to do the same thing. Grab your Bible just for a moment. Let's go over, put a little marker here in Hebrews 12. We're coming back to that. Let's go over to Romans chapter 8. In verse 1. And I ask her, I, I want you to read that out loud. Well, she couldn't find the book of Romans. She didn't know her way around the Bible at all, so Martin had to open the Bible and find the book of Romans for her, turn her over to Romans 8, give it back to her and say, here, this is what you need to read. Read verse 1 for me. And she read in broken German, therefore there is now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. And she looked up at me and I said to her, do you know who wrote that? And she said, no. I said, a man by the name of Paul. I said, do you know who Paul was? No. Well, aside from being an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, the apostle Paul, before he became a Christian, <clears throat> participated in the murder of Christians. This is a murderer writing these words. And she looked at me 
And she looked down at this, and then she looked at me again, and she looked down at the verse again. This is a murderer pinning these words. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And the tears started to flow again. And I said, I began to explain the verse to her, explain what that meant in relationship to her life, and I said to her, now, now you've got to understand a little bit of my thinking as a pastor and as a counselor. Here, this woman has just spent an hour sharing her whole life with me. There are at least 30 things that I need to address in this woman's life. We would be here until 5 o'clock in the morning. I said, can't do that. It's too late at night. This isn't going to work. But I said to her, Here's what I'd like to do after I explained the verse to her. I said, I want you to go home and I want you to spend this evening memorizing this verse. I want you to come back tomorrow, quote it to me, and tell, tell me what it means in relationship to your life. She said, okay, which was a tall order for a 75-year-old woman. We had prayer. It had been raining all day long that day. In fact, she had walked several blocks to church in the pouring rain in order to come to the training. So we made sure she had a ride home that night. Next morning came, I saw Martin. I said, Martin, have you seen our lady? He said, no. And just then she comes bursting through the double doors of the church, making a beeline right towards us. She showed up and I said, ask her Martin if she memorized her verse. He did, she quoted it perfectly. I said, now ask her, what does this mean in relationship to her life? And she looked me in the eye, and the tears came, and she says, all the guilt that I've carried for 60 years is now on Christ. I said, that's right. That's right. All the guilt, all the anger, Murdering my child. It's on Christ. We talked a little bit more. I gave her some other passages she should write down and read. And I encouraged her to go see her pastor and spend some time talking with him. A couple years after that, we were back in the same area. I attended a luncheon where her pastor was at. And I said to him, uh, how's so-and-so doing? Oh, my goodness. He threw his arms in the air. And he says, that woman is a spark plug in our women's ministry. Do you know she runs the kitchen of our church? Uh, and we'll have a 1,000 people show up, and she'll feed them all, all by herself. She was used to doing that in prison camp. God trained her under tough circumstances. Turn back to Hebrews 12. Is God punishing me? I want to identify four vitally important principles here. You may want to write these down. I guarantee at some particular point you're going to need these either for your own life or to help somebody else. Principle number one is verse 7. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Now, a good way you can translate this verse, at least the first phrase of it, we are to endure hardship as discipline. God is dealing with us as with sons. We are to endure hardship as discipline. That means all the hardship that I endure, every difficulty that I endure, whatever it may be, I'm supposed to endure that hardship as discipline? Yes. So principle number one is this. I must view hardship as God's discipline in my life. I must view hardship as God's discipline in my life. That's really key. Now, this is the way our God works. This is 
the way in which he works with us as his sinful children. We have plenty of evidence of that throughout Scripture. In fact, take your Bible just for a moment, put a marker here in Hebrews 12, and let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 8, and we'll pick up in verse 2. Deuteronomy 8, verse 2. Moses is writing on behalf of God to the people of Israel, and he says, You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you will keep his commandments or not. Now notice this, God is not testing them so that he can find out what's in their hearts. He already knows what's in their hearts. He's testing them so that they'll find out what's in their hearts. Our major mistake is that we think we already know what's in our hearts and we don't know. That's a fatal error. You know that thing that shows up on your computer screen? That's a fatal error in your life. You think you know what's in your heart. You don't know until the pressure's turned up, right? And then the real you comes to the surface. And it's not pretty. You become angry, angry, you become hateful, you become bitter, you become resentful, you become jealous. You say things and you think to yourself, I can't believe I just said that. The pride comes out. Where did that come from? When all the righteous veneer is now shed, all the thinking of self-righteousness is now set aside and all of this stuff comes to the surface. And you go to a restaurant and you want some hot tea. You know, they bring out that great big thing, has all these tea bags in it. You know, and I tell people, listen, uh, our forefathers did not die for herbal tea. It's only black tea was in the Boston Harbor, okay? No herbal tea in Boston Harbor. But how do you know whether or not that tea's any good? How do you know that? You don't until you put it in hot water. Then you find out whether or not it's good or not. That's what God does. God does that to your life. He takes you and puts you in hot water, and it's what comes out. Under that stress and under that pressure that reveals who you are. Sometimes I use the illustration in counseling. If I hold a big sponge out over my Bible, and I squeeze that sponge, and my Bible were to get all wet, how come my Bible's wet? My counselors always roll their eyes. You think I'm stupid, don't you? Well, it's wet because you squeeze the sponge. And I'll say to them, no, that's not the reason why it's wet. It's wet because there was water in the sponge. I can squeeze a dry sponge. It's not going to get wet. God squeezes your life and it's what comes out that reveals the real you. And oftentimes we're shocked, we're surprised, we're humiliated, we're humbled as a result of what has come out. God did that to Israel. Verse 3, he says, He humbled you and let you become hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. It shows us how deficient we are in obeying God when the pressure's turned up. Go over to Proverbs chapter 17. 
Proverbs chapter 17, Solomon says the same thing, just different words. Verse 3. The refining pot is for the silver, the furnace for gold. Why do they put silver and gold in furnaces? So that to purify it. So that all the dross will come to the surface. So that that gold and silver will be richer, more pure, more true gold, more true silver. And so at the end of verse 3 says, in a similar way, the Lord tests hearts. God puts us in furnaces. And it melts away all the external self-righteousness. And we get down to the very basic core of who we are under pressure. It's that affliction. It's that kind of hardship that reveals to us who we really are. God tests us. Our God is a professor. He gives us exams. Some of the hardest tests of our lives come from him to show us how much we don't know. We think we know. But we don't. Go to Psalm 119. We're talking about the very character of God here. How is it that God works? Why does he treat me the way he treats me? Why has he allowed certain things to happen in my life? Psalm 119, verse 67. Here the psalmist says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. One of the benefits of affliction is it shows me how I'm not keeping his word. It shows me how I have fallen so far short of keeping his word. I have been disobedient to him. That's what affliction does. Verse 71 it was good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. The Hebrew behind the verb was could actually be translated I am. It was good for me that I am afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. So it may be something that the psalmist is actually presently going through, that I am afflicted. It's good. We have a tendency to think God's being bad to us when he afflicts us. The same way... Same thoughts go through your children's mind when you afflict them, right? My mother's mean. My father doesn't love me. Same thoughts go through your mind in relationship to God the Father. Verse 73. Your hands made me, Hebrew past tense, and fashioned me, Hebrew imperfect, in other words, he continues to fashion me. He made me in the past, but he continues to work on me and fashion me and mold me. That's what our God does. That's the way he works, that I may learn your statutes. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Verse 75. Now fashion your seatbelts, put your crash helmets on. You ready? Verse 75. I know, O oh Lord, that your judgments are righteous and in faithfulness you have afflicted me. We have a tendency to think that God is being unfaithful when he afflicts me. The psalmist said he's being faithful when he afflicts me because he's getting rid of all the external superficiality and self-righteousness and pride. He's going through a righteous process of humbling us showing us how deficient we are and how much we need to cling to Christ. Isn't that what troubles do in our life? Every trouble that you have, every difficulty you have, should remind you 
how much you need Christ. Everyone. No matter how minor, no matter how great, should remind you how much you need Christ. God's being faithful, not unfaithful, when he afflicts us. Verse 92, if your law had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. You know why? Because we think we can handle this ourselves. When our kids were little, they used to say, I'll do it my only self. That's what we think. We say to God, God, I'll do it my only self. That's what I'll do. I can handle this. I don't need you. Oh, yes, you do. So the first thing we've got to remember is I must view hardship as God's discipline. You say, wait a minute. You still haven't answered the question, is God punishing me? I know. I will. Hang with me. We've got to get this down, though. I've got to view hardship as God's discipline in my life. Principle number two. Let's go back to Hebrews 12. Verses 8 and 9. But if you are without discipline, notice this, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of our spirits and live? Principle number two. When God brings hardship into my life, he's acting as my loving heavenly father. When God brings hardship into my life, he's acting as my loving heavenly father. This is his love reflected towards us by doing what is best for us in the long run. Turn back to Psalm 89 for a moment. Verse 32. Psalm 89 and verse 32. Here God says, Then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes, but I will not break off my loving kindness from him nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. So God is being loving to us. And one of the things that shows his love is the fact that he is not going to break off his relationship with us. He is still with us no matter how much wickedness come out of my heart during those trials and during those difficulties. He is going to remain steadfast with us. That is a part of his faithfulness towards us. That is, his faithfulness is demonstrative of his love for us. His faithfulness is seen in the fact that he's willing to take us through hard times. When God brings hardship into my life, he's acting as a loving father. Wow. That's hard for a lot of Christians because they are so used to thinking, God, you've forgotten me. Lord, I'm still here. Look at all I'm going through. Have you turned your attention to somebody else? Oh, no. His attention is riveted upon you. But you're chafing under it. And all of this venom that has been a part of the heart that you didn't even realize was there is now coming up in the midst of that affliction, revealing things about yourself that are not pretty at all. When God brings hardship into your life, he's acting as loving father. 
All right, you say, you still haven't answered my question. Is God punishing me? Well, let's get at that. Let's go back to Hebrews 12. Now, I had you fasten your seatbelts and put your crash helmets on. Now, put on your flak vest. You ready? Verse 10. For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. Who's they? Human fathers. Sometimes human fathers don't do the best thing. Sometimes human fathers can be unreasonably abusive. But a true loving father, even a true loving father can't always make the right decision in regards to discipline of his child. So they do the best they can if they truly love their child. We're not talking about abusive parents here. We're talking about truly loving fathers. So they discipline us for a short time and seem best to them. But he, this is God, he disciplines us for our good. Every bit of his discipline for our good. Now notice this. So that we may share in his holiness. There it is. Is God punishing me? Principle number three. Listen to this. This discipline is not punitive. It's corrective. This discipline is not punitive. It's corrective to bring about greater holiness in my life. Wow. God is not causing us to pay for our sins. If that's the case, if God is truly punishing us, then Christ died needlessly. He took all the punishment. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. If we're paying for our sins, then Christ's payment on the cross was insufficient. It fell short. It wasn't enough. And now we have to add our own suffering to his suffering in order to pay God off fully. That's heresy. That's Roman Catholicism. That's not biblical Christianity. Because Roman Catholicism teaches progressive justification. Biblical Christianity, as Hebrews 10 says, Christ died once for all. Period. The payment was made. The payment was accepted. Our sins are taken care of. Our guilt is removed and placed on Christ, we're not paying for anything. We're being perfected. Mm. That changes everything. And the tears should roll. Go back to Proverbs 3. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. Solomon captures the similar idea here to the writer of Hebrews. And he picks up with God and he applies what God is doing in our life to human fathers. Proverbs 3, verse 11. My son, he says... Do not reject the discipline of the Lord, nor loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves. Even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. No wonder. Hebrews 12.8 talks about the fact if we don't go through hardship, 
We have good reason to believe we're illegitimate children. We're not true Christians. We're not true believers. In other words, if we are true believers, he will for sure take us through hardship. We have a good reason to question our Christianity if we suffer no affliction and our life is always comfortable and easy. Wow. This discipline is not punitive, it's corrective in order to bring about greater Christ-likeness in my life, greater holiness in my life. If we really were paying for our sins, then we would be hanging on a cross. We would be suffering the judgment of hell. And I know that there are people in counseling who will say to me, I'm going through hell. Well, they don't understand what the Bible says about hell. I know their life is hard, and I know life, their life is miserable, and I know they may describe it as hell, but it's nothing like the biblical hell. If you're really paying for your sins, that's where you're at. God is not being punitive. He was punitive with his son who hung in your place. And as you live your life in the shadow of the cross, where every time you look up and you think to yourself, I should be hanging there, that changes your whole perspective on life. But Christ. Every hardship, every difficulty, every affliction that you go through should remind you of how much you need Christ. Every trouble. Let's go back to Hebrews 12. Last point. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's purposely hard. All God's people ought to say amen there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorrowful, hard, gut-wrenching. Yet to those who have been paying for their sins. Oh, no, no, that's not what it says. To those who have been trained by it. Afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Principle number four, listen, listen carefully. I know when this hardship, I'll know when this hardship has done its job because my heart will be at peace. The peaceful fruit of righteousness. I'll know when this hardship has done its job and made me more obedient to Christ, more like his son, and more holy, because my heart will be at peace, even though my circumstances have not changed one iota. Nothing's changed. But my heart's at peace. I'm no longer anxious. I'm no longer full of angst. I'm no longer fighting God every step of the way on the inside. I'm no longer doing that. My heart's at peace. I'm okay. Jonathan Edwards, probably America's greatest theologian, he was the president of the College of New, New Jersey, which later on became Princeton University. Sadly, Jonathan died March 27, 1758, during the time that Catherine the Great was ascending the throne of Russia. He died of a smallpox inoculation. He left behind a grieving widow, Sarah Pierpont Edwards. Sarah loved her husband. She worked side by side with him through so many things. Upon his death, she wrote her daughter, 
and she said this. Listen to this. What shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands over our mouths. The Lord has done it, but my God lives and he has my heart and we are all given to God. Wow. You see that? Can you turn around and kiss the rod that just whacked you? Sarah Pierpont Edwards was able to turn around and kiss the rod. Charles Spurgeon later on wrote, I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Kiss the wave that throws me against the, the sharp shoals. And I'm bloodied, and I'm cut, and I'm bruised, but I turn and kiss the wave. I'll know when that hardship has done its job in my life because my heart is at peace. I can turn around and kiss that rod because I know it is for my good. Let's bow for prayer. Your Father, there are a lot of us that need to learn how to turn and kiss the rod of affliction, hardship, trials and difficulties, and stop implying that Christ's death was insufficient and somehow think that our own sufferings are going to supplement the uh, sufferings of Christ. That's nothing but heresy. That's nothing but Roman Catholicism. That's not biblical Christianity. Christ's death paid it all. We're not paying anything. God's bringing hardship into our lives to teach us to be like his son, Jesus Christ, to be more righteous and holy in our walk, to strip away the self-righteous veneer that we put on every day, to be humble. Our God tests us. And help us, as Solomon said to his son, not to loathe his reproof. This we pray in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said.